Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig. Today we are joined in the podcast studio by our chief economist, Dr. Eric Crampton. And we're very pleased and really delighted to have the University of Auckland's Des Gorman with us. Now, Des is, of course, well known as a commentator on all things covid He is an Emeritus Professor of Medicine in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland. He's looking back on a long career, both in health policy and also on the boards of a number of corporations. And he's got a previous history, even as a submariner and a diver in the Royal Australian Navy. Welcome to the podcast, Des. Well, thank you, Oliver. And hello, Eric. Great pleasure to have you with us. I mentioned your biography for a reason, because you look back on a long and varied career, um, but have you ever had that much public attention um, that you experience now in this COVID crisis? Have you ever had that before? Uh, no, Eric. Certainly my time in the Australian Navy as a submariner and as a mine water and clearance diving officer uh, was hardly in the public limelight. And certainly my career in uh, clinical medicine and my interests are in brain injuries. I have two doctorates, both a PhD from the University of Sydney and an MD from the University of Auckland in brain injury research. And again, uh, that city didn't thrust you into the public limelight. But the other career I've had over the last two to three decades has been in health system design, workforce development, uh, even health economics, which I got dragged into. Um, and in some instances, that certainly has had a public place. For example, uh, when I helped the Auditor General in Alberta with respect to their health issues, uh, that became public, and it reflects the fact that um, no matter how hard you try, health policy and health system delivery is inherently political, mm. and because it's inherently political, it's inherently uh, attractive to the media. So, um, But over the last 18 months, it's uh, remarkable how um, much media attention there has been around COVID, understandably so, because it's such a substantive existential risk. Uh, so the media, the media exposure to last year, Oliver, has been, on the one hand, welcome, and on the other hand, some of it's been quite unpleasant. And, and you are probably not alone with that experience. There are quite a few of your colleagues from other universities as well. I think of Susie Wilds or Michael Baker or Sean Handy. Few people would have heard of them before, but COVID has really brought them to prominence. I just wonder, what does it actually do to a person? What has it done to you personally? Uh, not a great deal, Oliver, to be honest. Uh, I've always had a propensity to be reasonably forthright in my opinions, but I'm not um, egocentric about those opinions. I'm more than happy to debate them, and if Uh, that debate shows the flaws in my thinking or in my view, I quickly change. So I don't, I'm not one of those people that are firmly adherent uh, to particular opinions. The opinions are mine on the day, formed on the basis of information available to me. Yeah, that seems a really important part of academia. In my prior life, uh, mine hasn't been as varied as yours, but I was on faculty at Canterbury University from 2003 through 2014 as lecturer and senior lecturer. And it seemed like the, the heart and soul of the place was academic debate where you and your colleagues, sometimes you'd agree on stuff, sometimes you'd disagree. You'd have at sometimes in the pages of journals, sometimes just in the lunchroom. But you, you ha that, that was kind of the job of the academic, right? That it was to try and find truth and to debate that through until you converge towards it ever, ever closer, right? So I was a little surprised to see your head of department coming in and giving you a bit of a slap for um, 
dating views that I thought were pretty sensible. The, I can't imagine that having happened at Canterbury during the time that I was there. It's just not a thing that we ever would have expected a head of department to do is weigh in on academic debates among colleagues. Like, how does that happen? Uh, Eric, I think, uh, as you well know, and I'm sure all of us are aware, there's only one rationale for universities, and that is academic freedom. Universities are not an a efficient way of doing research. I mean, research institutes are far more efficient. Uh, universities are not even an efficient way of teaching. In- education institutes are more efficient. Society uh, has a, confers a, an enormous privilege on universities and university academics, and that privilege is based on a role of academic freedom where academics are seen as, along with the media, I guess, uh, an independent and critical view and an independent and critical lens on society. And I, I was really disappointed by um, that particular response in the media. Uh, it's been going on for a year, though, Eric. There have been attempts from colleagues to get me to keep quiet. The view has been, you should support the government, don't rock the boat. This is not the right time to put up contrary points of view. My response is, this is exactly the right time for contrary points of view. I've had some of them say to me, look, you're not a public health doctor, you have no right to comment. And I say, look, the issue's not about public health. The public health measures have been very very well defined by people like uh, Sir David Skegg. This is about having a plan and executing that plan to deliver those public health measures. And when it comes to health systems, that's something I know as much about as anyone in the country. So uh, that article in the paper the other day was a culmination of what has been a long campaign from, I I hope, a small group of academics to silence me and silence the debate. And I think it's um, hugely disappointing that the two points made in that article, Eric, one that I can't speak on behalf of the university, well, that's a statement of the obvious. No one can. But I had to to remark on the, I thought, ironic hypocrisy of in the same breath, that person who wrote that actually then going ahead and expressing a departmental point of view. I thought that was somewhat ironic and certainly hypocritical. And the only other point he made was to say that I had been unjustified in describing our success in inverted commas with regards to COVID as being largely due to good luck. Well, Eric, I'd uh, point out the recent shambles, that's any way to describe it, in Tarn with regards to that ship with infected mariners and say, if you can look at that and not tell me, then that's relying on sheer good luck, then I'm not sure what planet you're living on. Just for a bit of context for our listeners, you mentioned you've been involved in health reforms in a number of different jurisdictions around the world. Can you just give us an idea of how much you have consulted over the last few decades and in how many countries? Yeah, just just to pick out some, uh, the World Health Organization Commission need to help the Philippine government introduce the universal health care coverage system with a particular focus there on workforce. I was one of the three people that oversaw the health reforms in Hong Kong. Uh, I mentioned that I worked for the Auditor General in Alberta. Murray Horn and I led the health reviews in Queensland. Uh, I wrote the, or helped write the health vision for the Sultan of Amman and still uh, and involved in their reforms. I did reviews of the health systems for the UAE and the health systems of Germany and Switzerland and the, the Netherlands. Uh, I have 
um, had workshops and other led other things for the Association of American uh, Medical Colleges and for the Royal Canadian College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons. I've done workforce stuff in Tasmania and Victoria. I reviewed the National Health Group in Singapore. Those are some just off the top so of for, my So for someone with that kind of experience in international health systems, you are extremely qualified to comment on the state of our own health system. So that makes it even more shocking for some of your colleagues to recommend you should just basically shut up and just support the government. That is outrageous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is, Oliver. And I mean, I'm reasonably certain it's only a small group. Um, I hope so. I mean, that might be hope getting in the way. Of, uh, but look, my sense is that most academics understand the privilege of academic freedom and they respect it. Sometimes you hear other academics express points of view that you think are crazy, but you know, on the one hand, you should debate the point of their opinion, but I mean, we have to celebrate their ability to say those things because that's what matters. So, I, look, I found that um, article in the Herald. I thought it was very disappointing. I was disappointed in it, and I was disappointed with the individual involved. Well, it almost feels like the university is getting an awful lot of money on COVID consultancy and through the research center at Auckland Uni. And one of the strings on that might be perceived to be a, the whole university will toe the line on COVID lest this continued funding line be at risk. And it's yeah. particularly interesting where one of the members of that group had written a book previously on what he called the silencing of science, where he decried the corrupting influence of money in academia for precisely this kind of reason. So it's yeah. a bit yeah, of a worry. It's interesting, Eric. I mean, I, You'd hope, you'd hope that's not the case, but um, uh, certainly the public health people who have been vocal over the last year have a very much stronger private opinion than they do of a public opinion. I think there is a general sense of fear of speaking out and being forthright. Uh, certainly someone rang me uh, last year after the Prime Minister had mentioned me in Parliament and said that I really didn't know what I was talking about when I was predicting Uh, more outbreaks. In fact, I was misquoted by both the opposition and the Prime Minister. What I said was, we have to assume there'll be more outbreaks and act accordingly. What I was arguing for was being prepared and doing surge testing or contact tracing and doing surge testing of testing and surveillance systems. So anyway, uh, they rang me and said, listen, the Prime Minister's named you in Parliament. We won't be able to use you. And I said, well, I'm not sure I want to be used, but does it matter that I was proven to be right within a week And the answer was, well, no, that actually makes it work. So um, I think there's a, a, a prevalent environment of uh, a reluctance to speak out for fear of the repercussions. And I think that's particularly the case for public health practitioners who I think uh, are far more reliant on government and government support than other forms of clinicians. But, Eric, you really hope... Look, I, I'm really hopeful that my university wouldn't behave in that way, and I'm, that's why I'm, I'm reassuring myself that this is the behaviour of a small, small group, and, and maybe that that's just my na naivety showing through. Yeah, I think that it has been kind of long-standing in public health, and I think it's not just under the current government. When I was at Canterbury, I'd had a minor research grant from an alcohol industry group, and the. Uh, Research and consult it was all run through the university, so the university got their big cut on it. But the 
research office that it was the most ironclad they'd ever seen on academic freedom. But there was a note from the public health outfit objecting to that the contract even existed. And one of the reasons for their objection was that they feared for future grants from the Ministry of Health. Now, fortunately, we had a very good deputy vice chancellor for research and told them to piss off. But it really worries me when heads of departments are slapping you instead of backing you on this kind of issue. It's it's bad. And since we talked about the um, head of department, Professor Ian Reid, I just want to read you a quote from the Herald article, and I would like to get your thoughts on that. So he was asked where in all of your commentary he disagreed with you. And um, it was basically the assertion that it was just sheer dumb good luck that got us through the crisis. And Ian Reid is quoted here saying, to have sustained the containment of the pandemic in New Zealand over a period of 18 months cannot be attributed to sustained good luck. I think there has clearly been a lot of skillful planning and execution. You have, throughout the crisis, basically argued the opposite. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I think um, um, if you look at the way in which the crisis has been managed, Oliver, we've had day-to-day governance directly from politicians. Uh, And interestingly, people try to portray my point of view as having a political ambition or a political underpinning, whereas in fact I've been arguing from the get-go that this should be depoliticised and apolitical in the same way that we provide day-to-day governance of the Reserve Bank, the Super Fund and ACC, where the government determines direction of travel, risk parameters and so on, and then people who are actually expert in governance get on with the job. Uh, And the trouble with politicians in the governance role, first of all, is that they don't have the experience or the skills to undertake day-to-day governance. The second thing is, no matter how hard they try, um, they are influenced by electoral risk. I mean, politicians have to win a popularity contest every three years. That makes it almost impossible to balance the competing demands of economic and livelihood risk on the one hand and health and well-being risk uh, on the other. So I think we've had a governance approach which has been politicised. I think uh, there has been never been a clearly stated risk appetite. There still isn't. Um, we've had quite malignant cultures that have arisen because of that governance model. One of those um, malignant cultures is to manage uh, community behaviour through fear. Uh, and I understand the political capital, and that's not just our government. Governments all around the world have uh, benefited politically from fear. Fear generates anxiety. One of the ways in which most people manage anxiety is faith in establishment figures, such as the Prime Minister, such as the Director General of Health, such as the Ministry, and that faith leads to an endowment of them with special abilities, and then you have confirmation bias, where information that fits the endowment you pay attention to, and information that doesn't fit the endowment you ignore. So I think there's been um, that culture of fear has been exaggerated by uh, the black box management. We don't have an open, transparent plan. The plan is not negotiated in public. The data going into the plan aren't developed in public. Uh, so David Skegg, who's a person for whom I have the most utmost respect, his report yesterday basically said, what, that we'll continue on until such time, sometime in the future, when an undetermined percentage of people are vaccinated and we have some idea of what the world is doing and then we'll open in an extraordinarily cautious way. Well, that sort of 
that sort of commentary and planning just exaggerates that fear. And I think the other malignant culture uh, is the culture of where the envy of the world invests in show. Now, that clearly fits the political narrative, but the problem with being the envy of the world invests in show is that there are three consequences of that culture. One is you become complacent. Two is you can't learn, won't learn, don't learn. And we've seen that from the get-go where we have tried to develop software when we could have got it from elsewhere. We've tried to develop uh, tracking apps when we could have got it from elsewhere. We were reluctant to take up masks when Michael Baker suggested masks. There was three or four months of pushback when um, uh, Shane Reddy recommended pre-departure testing. That filled that dead for six months. So there's been this, when you're best in show, it's very hard to learn. And the final, uh, I think, an even worse consequence of this culture of best in show is you fit the facts to the narrative, not the narrative to the facts. And I, I gave up counting the number of times we've been misled. There's plenty of PPE. No, there's not. People were buying their own. There's tons of influenza vaccines. No, there's not. The GPs knew that. And we find out later on that people saying there was plenty knew there wasn't either. Uh, everyone's being tested at the border. No, they're not. All the mariners are, more recently, all the mariners have access to vaccine. Then we find out, no, they don't. Uh, all the foreign overseas fishermen have been tested before they come. No, they haven't. They've all been put in quarantine. No, they haven't. Everyone's been tested before they go of quarantine. No, they haven't. And it's, it's this, it's got to the point now where I think a lot of people are losing faith and losing confidence because there have just been too many mismatches between what's been said and what's real. And that arises from this culture of being best in show. Um, so I think we've had a governance problem, Oliver. I've also, I mean, I'm very critical of the Ministry of Health, but I'm not criticising the individuals. I know they've been working very hard, but to say to a policy group in Wellington, you're now going to be responsible for day-to-day operations from the most substantive existential risk from a health perspective New Zealand's ever faced, it was ridiculous. They're a bunch of policy people. And to say to them, we want you to take on a complex operational task, put them in a position where the only possibility was that they would stumble from misstep to misstep to misstep, and that's what they've done. I heard... Um, Michael Baker to say, Michael today, say how good our contact tracing is. Well, it actually isn't. We've barely got above 50% of people being identified, contacted, and tested within four days. It's 51, 52%. It needs to be north of 80%. So uh, I'm critical of the Ministry of Health, but not because of the individuals involved, but because of their performance as a caveat. They should never have been put in that situation. And, and it's always struck me as strange that for a country that manages biosecurity risks so well and in such a nuanced way where private and public expertise is brought together to deliver a particular response, that we can look after our farms and our forests and our orchards and our vineyards so well that when it comes to looking after ourselves, we actually put in place a process which inevitably was going to do poor. So a bit of tongue-in-cheek, if the Ministry of Primary Industries had managed the epidemic, we would have got a better result? Yes. The Ministry of Primary Industries actually deserves a lot of credit for the way it manages biosecurity. Yeah. It sees itself as a coordinating agency. It sees itself as a facilitator. It sees itself as bringing together expertise. Look, Oliver, if you and I are going to design an immunisation program, we'd have gone to the GPs and said to them and the primary care networks and the PHOs and the DV trusts and the community boards and said, can we have a list of all your vulnerable people, please, and whānau? 
okay, you've identified this many, here's the vaccines you need. Your job now is to contact them, manage their vaccine hesitancy, and immunise them. So the first thing you'd have done is use the primary care network. The DHBs and the Ministry of Health don't know who's vulnerable. In fact, even today, if you say, how many people are there in Group 2, they can't even tell you the denominator. They don't know. So the first thing you'd have done is gone to the primary care network because they do know. The second thing is you'd have sat down with Freightways, Foodstuffs, and uh, Woolworths and said, okay, you guys are experts in logistics and supply chain. Let's put together a system where we call upon your expertise in logistics and supply chain to make sure that we can enable this vaccine rollout. Uh, that's how you'd have done it, and it would have been would have been in a much much better position now than we're in. Oh, thanks for all this. For for the past year, it's felt kind of like gaslighting. So the the term gaslighting gets used when everybody's giving a narrative that isn't quite in line with reality and you start feeling crazy because everybody's telling you that the world is one way and when you look out the window it just isn't that way but everybody's really insisting that that your eyes are lying to you and it's great hearing somebody coming out the other way i wonder how much of this has been um sincerely believing that the world is that way and how much of it is just this terror that the slightest bit of critique means that the government stops listening. So if Michael Baker were to have said, well, actually, contact tracing is a mess, then the government might have said, well, we're not going to listen to you anymore because you're clearly not on our team. So you're going to be out in the wilderness like everybody else who's ever disagreed with us. So you start making these trade-offs on how much of the truth you're going to have to hedge so that you're able to have some influence in the areas where it's going to really matter. And and that, that scares me. Well, and you and me both, uh, Eric, I think uh, the answer, my answer is yes to all of the above. I think some of it, like when I watch uh, some of the ministers, for example, uh, make announcements, you get the sense they genuinely believe what they're saying. Uh, So I think there is some degree of, it's been repeated, the mantra has been repeated so often that it's, it's made the transition from uh, fiction to fact in their minds. I think that's one thing that's happened. Another, but there are instances, for example, I mentioned the influenza vaccine where we had both the minister at the time and the director general saying there was plenty of influenza vaccine, but emails that you obtained that they were sending the same day they said that shows they knew there wasn't. They knew there wasn't enough influenza vaccine. Now I suspect their argument is They've had to manage public expectations and maintaining public confidence means that you may have to be less than forthright. I don't believe that's ever true. Just I think it deserves free and frank conversation. And in my view, black box management has a political outcome, a positive political outcome, but in fact, um, managing people by fear and by fiction has an end date. The, the, there's only so long you can frighten the public into behaving in a certain way, and there's only so long you can continue to be fast and loose with facts. At some stage, that runs out, and we're seeing that in many countries now where people are saying, we don't trust you anymore, we don't believe you anymore, we're just going to do our own thing. I mean, the New South Wales outbreak has been continually fueled by a large proportion of people there saying we're simply not going to behave anymore. Mm. Just uh, following up on Eric's question, there's... Um, there are people who are holding back their real opinions um, because they don't want to fall out with the government. They want to hedge what they say. But it also leads to a different kind of culture. And I just wondered, 
How many times has it happened to you over the past year that people have privately come to you to say that they agree with you, but they would never say that in public? Uh, and sometimes, Oliver, that's been daily, uh, many times a week. Uh, when I catch up with people who, uh, they'll say, you know, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And then I say to them, well, why don't, why don't you come out and say it then? And the answer is, well, oh, if I haven't really been asked or if I have been asked, I was just a bit reticent about being so uh, almost sounding angry or anti-government. So um, that's been a commonplace experience in the last year, Oliver. Uh, is, is that something new or has it happened before? Sorry? Is that something new as a phenomenon or have you experienced that before? Oh, I, I've experienced it before, Oliver, but never to this degree. Even, even people who disagree with you in public, in private, they would come and apologize? Not so much apologize, but certainly say that um, their opinions are far more close, are more are closer to mine than what that public announcement would have indicated. For example, uh, if you look at people, I'm not, not naming anyone at the moment, but if you look at people who say their contact tracing system is doing very well, then I say to them, look, uh, the most important measure in contact tracing is a four-day measure that Aisha Burrell and her very good report identified that within four days you should be able to identify the people of interest uh, and then identify them, contact them, test them and then dispose them in terms of putting them in quarantine or whatever. And you should be able to do that to 80% of people within four days. And, and my view was it needed to be close to 100%. Four days is a long time. But in fact, if you look at all of our performance, from the cold store outbreak since, we have barely got above 50%, 51%, 52%. We've never got to 60%, let alone 80%, let alone more than 80%. And so when you hear someone say, oh, the contact tracing is going very well, you say, well, you walk them through that data I just gave, they say, oh, yeah, there are some problems, aren't there? And you go, well, how do you reconcile your public statement that contact tracing is going very well with the reality of the data, which shows that it actually isn't. It's got real problems. It's a, it's a phone-based system. It doesn't involve a mobile workforce. It doesn't involve sophisticated tracking. It's, it's probably performing as well as it can, but it's not good enough. Cool. So piercing some of this gaslighting, it'd be useful for me to just rapid-fire run a few uh, micro-policies past you to let me know if I'm crazy for thinking these make sense or if policy is just nuts. Now, what, just as kind of background, I, I tend to think of all of this in a micro and macro framework. Micro <laughs> is all of the measures we could be taking right now to be increasing safety at very low cost. Macro is what's the big picture over the next three years? How do we get out of this? And what should these longer term policy settings be? Now, they kind of interact. Getting policy set right now would help us learn for the macro for later. But there's lots of things that I see as just like horrible mistakes that we're making right now. And maybe you can tell me I'm nuts or maybe you can tell me that like I'm sane and the world is crazy. So yeah. as a starting point, we haven't ordered boosters for the next two years. Everybody else is ordering boosters for the next two years. The government's claiming that, uh, well, it's being kind in not ordering stuff. This is going to keep evolving. We're going to keep needing boosters. Like how bad is it that we haven't put in big orders for the Delta booster that's being developed currently, like what, it will be ready at some point. We should have our orders first in the queue rather than last and just more yeah. boosters for as protection wanes for those who had the early shots. Yeah, and no, I agree entirely with you. Okay. Uh, we were late to order. We were late to confirm our order. 
uh, we didn't order enough, we are slow in ordering boosters, and the argument that we are behaving in a egalitarian fashion and not denying the third world uh, vaccine is spurious. In my view, if you have $50 million to spend on assisting, say, a country like South Africa, you'd spend on AstraZeneca at a couple of dollars each, not Pfizer or $40 each. So I think the whole thing's a fallacy. Awesome. Now, I keep being told that we couldn't have ordered early because MedSafe didn't approve it until last minute. Surely we could have had orders in early and then only start administering them after MedSafe approval. Am I nuts? No, you're not nuts. That's absolutely right. Also, to be reticent about MedSafe when uh, the FDA and others were giving approval for uh, vaccines suggests that somehow MedSafe is going to discover secrets about the vaccine which those larger regulatory authorities have missed. So I think, uh, uh, again, that, that, that's a fallacy, and I agree with you. Right now, I think we should be shifting some of the timing to get the vaccine out to all of the kids that have it authorized for age 12 and up while they're still in school because you can send public health nurses into the schools, jab them all real easy. If you leave it till summer holidays, it's going to be impossible to get that sorted out and then that'll wind up delaying everything. Am I nuts to think we should be trying to get those jabs out to schools, at least a first shot while they're still in school? No, you're not nuts. And also, I'd add to that, um, Eric, that uh, even now this late, we should still be going to all the GPs and saying we need a list of all your vulnerable people and whānau. We need to identify which of those have been vaccinated and the ones that haven't, please contact them and vaccinate them because there's a point to be made here and that's about vaccine hesitancy. Vaccine hesitancy is not vulnerable to social media or ads on TV. It's vulnerable to one-on-one conversations with someone that that person trusts and that's not a public health doctor from the local DHB with all due respect. That's their family doctor or their local EV leader. So uh, even now, I think not only we should be accessing children in schools, we should be also getting our GP network to start identifying the people we're leaving behind, Eric. Our vaccination program now going into a mass phase at you know, large community centres threatens to leave a lot of high-risk people behind. Next one. Reiko Science has been ready to deliver since January the Illinois Shield Protocol test. It's a saliva-based PCR test. It's been proven and validated in New Zealand. They could have rolled out at scale as of January to start testing every single person in MIQ every day. Now, in my view, it's just crazy that we've not been doing this. You would start having daily data on onset. You could start combining that with data on whether the arrivals have been vaccinated or not, so that you start getting a really nice risk profile for vaccinated travelers across different variants so that you know what the parameters are for any later opening. I think it's nuts that we haven't rolled this out, and I think that it's nuts that we didn't roll it out at scale in Wellington when we had the need for mass testing after the traveler from Australia went through a whole pile of really crowded spaces that were really risky. It seems like... I think it's just a fit of peak at MOH that their preferred provider, ESR, hadn't been able to figure out saliva testing, and so they're just annoyed and are being spiteful and don't want to contract with the proven delivery agent. Am I nuts? No, I think there's three things here, Eric, to support your point of view. The first is that we've seen a iterative, not invented here philosophy. Uh, our steam-driven um, contact tracing app is an example our reluctance to take up the telephone technology that Taiwanese that have used is another. The fact that we didn't go to the Israelis and borrow their software for the vaccine rollout is another. Uh, the fact that we didn't go 
to the US and look at some of their booking systems is another. The fact that uh, uh, we have gone with uh, a undeveloped PCR saliva test when there's one that's been approved and ready to roll makes no sense. Uh, I've been arguing for saliva-based testing for over a year. Uh, the evidence does, some studies have shown that saliva is not quite as sensitive as a nasopharyngeal swab. But Eric, there's been as many studies showing it the other way around. Yep. Uh, and the difference, the difference in sensitivity is so small that the advantage of daily testing, which is non-invasive, against weekly testing, and it's weekly because it's invasive, uh, it beggars belief that this is not a feature of every single day for every person in MIQ and all our court workers and so on and so forth. So, no, you're not nuts. Thank you. I have been thinking that I've been going crazy. A lot of people on Twitter say, Crampton, you're just an economist. Shut the hell up. You're crazy. Trust the government. It's nice to hear somebody who's an actual expert telling me I'm not crazy. Thank you. You're welcome. No, you're welcome. I mean, um, this not invented here thing, I think also is a byproduct of this. We're, we're the best in the world. We're the envy of the world and the best in show, Eric. It, it, I don't think people realize just how malignant that culture is because it, it's it's inherent complacency and inability to learn and it's reluctance to adopt best practice. Uh, in, all, in, in all the health reviews I've done around the planet, it strikes me that uh, left-leaning governments tend to talk to each other and reassure each other that the ideology is sound, whereas more centrist governments, more right-wing governments are forever horizon scanning because people often come from a background where finding the best and brightest, the best and the current good ideas and accommodating them is just part of business as usual for them. So uh, I actually think this reticence about other people's ideas is really holding us back. So shifting then over to MIQ, to me, it seems like we are ma missing a big trick that we actually could have expanded the system. We've been told for rather some time that it just wouldn't be safe, that all of the facilities that could be brought into the system are in the system. As an economist, that sounds nuts. You could always pay more and get more, that facilities could be brought up to spec if you're willing to let high-value travelers pay their own way. That pays for the room. They bring it up to spec. Why aren't we triaging sort of low-risk facilities for low-risk travelers, high-risk facilities for high-risk travelers, and getting more throughput that way while combining it with the daily testing that can ensure safety? Like, it seems like we were... Like we, we could triple the number of people coming in pretty easily if we weren't this dumb about it. Yeah, again, I agree. I think um, there's still an argument for dedicated quarantine facility for high-risk individuals. Uh, and this pandemic's got a long way to run. There will be more pandemics. There's a substantive return on investment for building that facility. I think we should be taking low-risk people, like those of us who are vaccinated, uh, and adopting the same approach we use to airlines where that's um, uh, isolation at home and daily testing, but on a low trust environment where you actually track them through their phones and make sure they are where they claim to be to free up spots. I think also we should be saying to tourism and we should be saying to universities and other education providers and we should be saying to industry, why don't you go away and come up with clever ways in which you get the people into the country that you need uh, and these are the risk parameters, and this is the audit process that we need to actually make sure you're complying with those risks. But what, why wouldn't we say to the clever people in New Zealand, come up with clever solutions 
to enable what you need to occur. That, you know, it's a fundamental observation that all the good ideas don't exist in some bubble in Wellington. Yeah. Let's invite let's invite clever, tailored solutions. Now, the reason I mention this is that you might remember 18 months ago, the university said we have a plan to get students into the country uh, at the level of risk that you're operating at and to manage them here, and they were told to go away. Yep. And the report that we'd put out in July argued similarly, flip the system for MIQ, have the government focused on audit trails and compliance and setting standards and have the providers focused on a booking system that isn't insane, that can actually get people through, that doesn't have empty rooms all the time and providing the level of service that travelers might expect. So it's just, it's frustrating that we were arguing all of this a year ago and we are in exactly the same spot now a year later. Yeah. Well, again, I pointed. I point my finger at the governance model, uh, at the electoral risk that drives that model, and that the twin cultures of management through fear and management by um, trying to obtain political capital by way of being the best in shape. Since we are coming to the end of our podcast recording, I just wanted to broaden it out a little bit. I mentioned before that you had a long career and a varied career. You were for a while a director of the um, New Zealand Accident Compensation and Rehabilitation Corporation, so ACC. You were executive chairman of the Health Workforce New Zealand. You were on the National Health Board and on the government's welfare reform group. And I know from previous conversations we've had, you take a special interest in education matters as well. So you have an across-the-board look at public policy in New Zealand. Now, if we take what you just told us about the pandemic response and the government's, um, well, can we call it lack of preparedness or incompetence in managing the pandemic well, if you take the other factor you described, that we think we are the best in the world and we like to seek this confirmation all the time that we're doing really well, is that a feature that you have seen and observed in other parts of New Zealand public policy? In ACC, yeah, yeah. in in welfare, you've been involved with the Ministry of Social Development, in education. Is that a general feature of the way we do policy in New Zealand, that we, on the one hand, believe we are the best in the world, we don't have much to learn from the rest of the world, and at the same time, the executive capacity in our lead agencies in Wellington is actually not quite as good as government, at least, believes it is? Yes, I think I'd agree with that premise, Oliver. It's a recurring it's something about us that means we are uh, inherently insecure but ironically that insecurity lends itself into a perpetual search for reassurance uh, and it's remarkable how that insecurity then manifests itself uh, in outbreaks of arrogance like we've got nothing to learn from other people and where we do have ongoing reliance on other people's system Many people in our health system have a love affair with the United Kingdom's National Health Service. For goodness sake, it's been insolvent for the last two decades. Um, it was a wonderful idea in 1948 when it was introduced, but within a few years, one of the architects, Andrew and Bevan of the National Health Service, stood up and said, well, if we expected to see a reduced capitated healthcare cost as a consequence of this, in fact, the opposite occurred. In other words, it was the victim, the victim of its own success. It's created a large number of uh, older people who don't pay tax but consume healthcare, and yet we still have a love affair with it. And we're obsessed with trying to create some sort of utopian national health service. So uh, it is a recurring characteristic. At the time on the welfare group, uh, um, it was a constant theme of institutionalized dependency. 
multi-generational uh, welfareism, children suffering terribly because of this, and yet we were constantly berated that we were anti-beneficiary, whereas in fact I thought we were profoundly pro-child. Our education system, we keep convincing ourselves it's the best in the world. Well, it never was, and it's not within curry of the best in the world. Our health system, we say that, you know, we have wonderful health care. Look, we've got very good health care in New Zealand because of the quality of the men and women who provide health care. But our health care system is uh, unaffordable, it's unsustainable, and it's profoundly unfair. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's just this national characteristic, Oliver, of, on the one hand, perpetual seeking of reassurance about how well we're doing, but then that rapid transition from that to this arrogant perspective that the rest of the world should be admiring just how good we are. We're not. Is there any easy way out of that culture, or is it really something that can only change over long periods of time because it is a culture issue? Yeah, yeah it's a good question. I think in the case of, um, you look at the reforms of healthcare and you look at the intended health reforms where next by next July all the 20 DHDs will be absorbed into a single crown entity. Uh, we're looking at cycles of devolving governance and then centralizing governance and devolving governance. And then how many times you go through that cycle before you realize that in the absence of sophisticated commissioning, purchasing and funding, in the, in the absence of taking modern behavioral economic thinking into health, that you're never going to see better return on investment for healthcare and better wealth, health and welfare. So at some stage, at some stage, I think our inability to deliver education and health in particular will have to lend itself to a major reform. And I, I look at what's happening now in the intended health reforms, Oliver, and I say, what a shame. What a shame that instead of some brave new world, we're simply going to go back to some remarkable idea that by centralizing command and control, everything will be okay. And the point to you, Eric, here is that when I talk to people that I teach with during the Harvard Leadership Program, uh, this is the antithesis of what sophisticated health systems do. Sophisticated health systems are going to a centralized enabler, facilitator, resource center, but looking for local solutions for local needs. So it's a bit depressing, Oliver, but... Um, I'm hoping that our health system, with the chaos that will occur with these intended reforms, may create an environment where a rational reform may have may break out. Well, then let's um, finish this conversation on this um, hope, because I think that's probably the most optimistic point to finish on. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Des. Thank you very much, and I hope we can continue the conversation perhaps in a future podcast. Very good, and good to talk to you too, Eric. Thank you Thank for your you. time. Thank you very much, Jess.